Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are going to finish 1 Timothy this week, and next week we'll start 2 Timothy. If you would like to read ahead Wednesday nights, we're in the book of Acts. If you'd like to join us on Wednesday nights, tonight is 1 Timothy 6. We will pick up in verse 11. We've titled this series of these two books, Legacy. And the reason why is because Paul is passing on a spiritual legacy to Timothy. Timothy's receiving it and giving it to the church of Ephesus. And that's really the application for us as we go through this study, is who are we passing on our faith to? Who are we investing in? And also, who are we receiving from? Who is the Paul in our life? We need a Paul in our life, but we also need a Timothy. And hopefully, whatever we're learning about the Lord, whether it's in quiet time or on the radio or here in the sanctuary, that we're passing that on to someone else, that we're not like the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea's got water coming in, but there's no water going out, and we want to have living water going in and also living water going out. And so let's pray and ask the Lord would speak to us this evening. Father, a simple request from our hearts tonight is that you would pour out your Holy Spirit. We definitely have felt your presence and been aware of your presence in worship, and you reign and you're holy We invite you to reign in our lives this evening. Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? God, would you challenge us this evening to be men of God, to be women of God? In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin our study, we're going to find that Paul addresses Timothy as man of God. So our title tonight is God's man, and you could insert God's woman. It's God's person? Are we really God's possession? Is our life sold out to him? And with this title that's given to Timothy, then there's an exhortation that comes with it. And if you're taking notes tonight, we're going to look at six key words, and you can write them down as we go through, but let me give them to you. The first is flee, and then the second is going to be pursue. The third is fight, to fight the good fight of faith. And then the fourth is obey, The fifth is command, and the sixth is guard. Now, if I went too fast, we're going to hit those again and again as we go through. But if you could really focus in with me tonight upon those six things, because that's the challenge for Timothy. It's also the challenge for us. Verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness, but you... He is to be a stark contrast to what we read last week with the false teachers who are given over to what? The love of money, the desire to be rich, false doctrine, words that are not wholesome, words that don't line up with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Timothy is to be swimming in a different stream, but you, oh man of God, you're not to be like these false teachers. Timothy, knowing the Old Testament, to hear written of him that he is called a man of God would have resounded with him because Moses was also called the man of God. Elijah was called the man of God. Elisha was called the man of God. David was called the man of God. Now here's this scared, weak, timid, young pastor. Paul's writing to him and saying, man of God. And I wonder if Timothy had to read a little closer. Who? What? Me? Man of God? Yep. Timothy, you're a man of God. And that's what God desires from all of our lives. I'm encouraged 
by the characters that I just mentioned. If you study Moses' life closely, you see he wasn't perfect. You probably know David wasn't perfect. Even Elijah got depressed and discouraged and wanted to run away from God's call on his life. To be God's person, to be God's man, to be God's woman doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. It means that you fall in love with the one who loves you. You experience his grace and you surrender to him. That's the key to being a man of God and a woman of God. So here's our first thing that Timothy was to do that applies to us as well, is to flee. Flee these things. That takes us back to the first part of chapter six. What are these things? It's the love of money. It's the desire to be rich. He's to run away from these things. Now picture this, you are being hunted right now. And what are you being hunted by? You're being hunted by the love of money and the desire to be rich. And if you don't flee from that, remember the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, it's gonna sneak up on you and you are gonna become prey. You're probably familiar that we have mountain lions here in the Rocky Mountains, and I was doing a little research on them. They can take down a moose, they can take down an elk, which means they can easily take down you. They can easily take down me. And in Cold Creek Canyon, Golden, not too far from here, here recently they have a mountain lion that killed eight dogs in a short period of time. And this one man was said he was home working in his office and he didn't hear anything, but went out later in the day and one of his dogs had been killed by a mountain lion with bite marks in the dog's skull. And then the other dog was a Labrador. No drag marks, but his Labrador was just completely gone. The mountain lion just was able to pick him up and say, you're lunch for me today. You look like deli sandwich for me today. Why do I say that? Just to keep you aware when you're going out hiking next time. No, the reason that I say that... <laughs> And this is why, is because the love of money and the desire to be rich is that mountain lion. It's going to sneak up on you. It's the way of our culture. It's the way of our flesh. I've got to have more. I need to have more. It's my stability. It's my, my security. So it's something that God's word says to run away from because it's dangerous and it'll destroy you. It will absolutely destroy your life if you don't run away from those things. These are very serious things for Timothy to take hold of, for us to take hold of as well. We need to be actively fleeing those things, but as we read, it brings us to our second point, then we're to pursue. The Christian life is not just about running away from the things that are evil, but it's about pursuing Jesus Christ. It's a passionate pursuit. So if you're taking notes, this is our second thing, it's pursue. And what are we to pursue as we look through? The first is righteousness. Right onness. that's righteousness. It's good things, Christ-like things, godly things, leads right next into godliness. To really understand godliness, it's Christ. Can you picture Jesus doing these things, Jesus saying these things? We want to pursue, we want to be on a passionate pursuit for righteousness, to know God's righteousness, to seek after it in our own lives, to seek after godliness, to seek after to be Christ-like. Continuing on what we're to pursue, faith. We're to pursue faith. Faith doesn't always just come naturally. And we're going to talk more about faith in the next verse, but it's something that has to continually be pursued. Love, love. We're to pursue love. Love for God, love for people, 
We're also to pursue patience. And patience can also be translated endurance. It's the idea of waiting while under pressure. Waiting while under difficult. It's when our flesh just wants to say, I'm going to give up, I'm going to throw in the towel. But we pursue patience. We pursue endurance. We set ourselves in the direction of continuing to press on to follow through. The greatest way we can develop endurance in our lives is looking at Jesus and seeing the joy that was set before him, how he endured the cross. What is it tonight that you want to give up on that you know you're not supposed to? Our flesh is always there. It gets there at different times and different seasons. And God says, pursue endurance. You don't know what's around the corner. You don't know what God's going to continue to do as you have long obedience in the right direction. As you walk with the Lord, endure in the midst of that trial and that pain and that difficulty. Endurance. And then the last is gentleness. Why do we have to pursue gentleness? Because it doesn't come naturally for most. Gentleness is power under control. It's meekness. It's to respond with kindness to God's people. Before we move on, think about the passionate pursuits that you have had in your life. Maybe it was a romantic interest and now you're sitting next to that romantic interest because he or she is now your spouse. Remember when you first met and sparks were starting to fly and all of a sudden nothing else really mattered and you were on a passionate pursuit. Maybe for some you've had your bell rung with your career and you went after education like no one's business because you knew to do this particular job, to have this position, you were going to have to devote yourself to education. You know a passionate pursuit. For some of you guys, maybe you're a car guy. This week I had a great dream that I bought an old 70s Jeep Wagoneer. It was unfortunate when I woke up and it wasn't true, you know. You're a car guy, and you know what it is to have a passionate pursuit. You got that car, and you fixed it up, and you learned everything about it, and you pursued after it. We all know, at some level of our life, a passionate pursuit. And can we say that about Christ tonight? Can we say that we're passionately pursuing Christ? All of these things, these six things that we read, can be summed up in Christ. Do you know how we get there? It's not necessarily by having someone yell at you or scream at you or saying, you should pursue Christ more. This is what I've found in my life is when I experience his love for me, when I am a failure, when I don't deserve it, like we sang tonight that his love never fails, like Chance prayed when I really deserve for God to turn his back on me, but instead of him forsaking me, he turned his back for me on the cross. John the disciple, he put it this way. He said that we love him because he first loved us. And when we see his love for us and we see the grace that he continues to have in our lives, it captures our hearts and it puts us in this place of pursuit. But here's the lesson is you're either gonna be hunted or you're gonna become the hunter. Are you following me? You're gonna become the prey or you're gonna become the pursuer. You can't have it both ways. You can't be casual about your relationship with Jesus Christ tonight. You say, I've got to flee, and I've got to become the one who is the pursuer after these things that are good. So this might be a verse to underline. It might be a verse to highlight and pray through and say, Lord, really help me to pursue these things that you list here in your word. 
The third thing that the man of God, the woman of God, is to have in their life is verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. In a few months when we get to the end of 2 Timothy, Paul will write and say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. The fight that we're to fight is one of faith. That's the constant battle in our lives is to trust the Lord, is to trust that he's working in and through our lives. Notice that it says that it is a fight and it is the good fight. There's lots of fights that you could get involved in tonight that will be destructive, but the one fight that's a good fight, the one fight that God wants you to be engaged in, to get the ring in the ring, is this fight of faith. And there's really two aspects of our faith that I want to focus on in just a moment. First, we have to fight the good fight of faith and making sure that our faith is in sound doctrine. And that's a big theme through First and Second Timothy. You'll notice over and over again that Paul's saying doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. He wants to make sure that this young man is believing the right things about God and he holds fast to those things. And you've probably seen people in their lives where they've started off well and even long years of believing good, sound doctrine and then for some reason they get off course and you start having conversations with them and you're saying, you believe what? How can you believe this? You, you've, you've always believed what's true and what's sound and what's biblical and now you're departing from sound biblical teaching and they'll even say things like, well, I know, I know, I know that I'm leaving sound doctrine. You're like, you know, you know, and you're, you're still doing it. And we, that's the battle for us is when we're 80 years old, 85 years old, you, whatever, as we continue into our years with the Lord, that we never depart from sound doctrine. It's very important to, to God's heart. So there's that aspect of our faith, but then there's also that aspect of our faith where we're trusting in God with all of our heart and not leaning on our own understandings. It's easy for us to kind of hold on to a part of our lives and not surrender to him and not truly trust him. I want to read a verse that really spoke to me this week in this area of trust and, and faith. You might want to write it down. It's in Psalms 27, and David's going through a difficult time. And he says, I would have lost heart, and you could probably put in there, I would have lost faith. Because losing faith and losing heart seem to go hand in hand. It's not like David was going to lose his salvation or lose his relationship with God, but there would be a defeat as he failed to trust God in a particular situation. The defeat would have been a defeated heart. He says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed, there's the faith, that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We know that we'll see the goodness of God in eternal life, but many times when we're going through a difficult circumstance, we lose sight of that we're going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And that's what David said here. He said, I believe I'm going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. God's going to use these difficulties, use this mind-blowing catastrophe that I'm going through to cause people to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. That's fighting the good fight of faith. That's in the midst of a trial when our emotions are saying, be discouraged, lose heart, have doubt, give up, that our faith kicks in 
And our faith says, I know God is good and he does good and I'm holding on to his promises. How do we do that? It's not based on feelings. It's based on who we know God to be. We look at the cross. We go, God, if you gave your son for me, I know that I know that I know you're good and I'm trusting you in the midst of this situation. But it is a fight and that's why Paul puts it this way, fight the good fight of faith. Faith has to be something that's pursued. Faith has to be something that's fought for. So brother and sister in Christ, how do you strengthen your faith? If tonight you're saying, man, this is speaking to me. I really need to get in the ring and fight for my faith and fight with my faith. I think there's two ways that come to mind. The first is admit your unbelief. Remember the man in the gospels that came to Jesus says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Ever been there? There tonight, that's a great place to start with the Lord, saying, God, I do trust you, but I do have this area of unbelief. I'm encouraged by the Psalms because they're brutally honest with God. Why does God allow the Psalms? Why does God allow things in the Psalms where David's like saying, just break their teeth, you know? There's some vivid things of David's praying. You're like, I don't know if that lines up with the character and nature of God. Why does God allow it to be in there? Because God's showing us the value of an honest, transparent relationship with him. I don't think God just enjoys pleasantries that we don't mean. If we're struggling in our faith, he would rather us be honest with him in a genuine relationship with the Father, saying, Father, I do trust you, but help my unbelief. I'm having a hard time over here. So that's the first thing in building up our faith. Romans 10, 17 gives us the second. It says this. That faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we're going through a valley and our faith is struggling, we want to get in the word of God like nobody's business. We want to listen to it as much as possible. We want to read it as much as possible. We want to be in as many Bible studies as possible. Talk about the word as much as possible because the word of God builds our faith. The word of God strengthens us in the knowledge of God and then that produces a stronger faith. Fight the good fight of faith. And then the second part of this is lay hold on to eternal life. This word lay hold on in the Greek, it means to grasp, to hold on to, sometimes with violence. What God's saying to Timothy is remember that you're going to heaven and no matter what, hold on to that and don't let go. And that's what we need to do as believers. We need to lay hold on to eternal life. Now, I want you to turn to somebody that you're sitting next to in just a moment, and even if you're sitting in the upper room or the cafe, and this is what I want you to tell them. This is the worst it's ever going to get, okay? So I'm going to count to three, and you're going to tell them this is the worst it's ever going to get. Ready? One, two, three. Isn't that encouraging? That's encouraging. Now, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, this is the best that it's ever going to get. So tonight, you need to get saved. But if you know Christ as your Savior, this is the absolute worst that it's ever going to get. And we want eternity to be stamped on our eyes. We can't get to this place where we become too comfortable here, too complacent here, too content with the things of this world. And God has a way of always keeping our minds focused on eternity. And we have to hold on to eternal life. We need to grasp it. He's reminded also in verse 12 of his confession. He confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy got up and said, I love Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is my master. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my savior. And Paul reminds him of this good confession before many witnesses. Jesus told us if we deny Christ before men, he'll deny us before the Father. But if we confess Christ before men, then he'll confess us before the Father. Why would we be shamed of Christ? Why would we not want to have that good acknowledgement, that good confession of Christ? I love these next few verses from verse 13 getting down into verse 16. It focuses on the confession of Christ. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So in the sight of God, God gives life to to all things and, and before Jesus Christ who had this good confession before Pontius Pilate. Pause for just a moment and think about what Jesus went through as he stood before Pontius Pilate. It started in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he was going to be betrayed by Judas. Prayed all night in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat blood. His disciples slept. No one stayed awake with him and he prayed. The Jews then arrested him, already put him on a pre-trial, beat him, ripped out his beard, spit upon him. The soldiers had their way with Christ. He's whipped 39 times. Many men would have died even before getting to Pilate. Pilate begins to be heavy-handed with Christ, and Christ came as a lamb before the slaughter. Didn't defend himself. Didn't open his mouth. This wonderful, amazing confession of Christ before Pontius Pilate. Verse 14, it gets us to our next exhortation, that you keep this command without spot. So we're to obey. This word keep, it means to obey. We're to obey this command. Notice that Paul's referring to something specific without spot. What is he referring to? This concept of being a man of God, being a person of God, of fleeing these things and pursuing these things. What Paul's telling Timothy is this is something that you should continue to do, is always seek after Jesus Christ. He's to keep this command without spot Why? So that he's blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. As you study the disciples and their writings, they anticipated Christ to come back at any time because that's what Jesus taught. Jesus taught us to be prepared and be ready for his return. No one knows the day or the hour of Jesus Christ. Now, if we really believe that Jesus Christ could come back at any time, it does affect our obedience, guaranteed guaranteed. There was times when my parents would leave my brother and I home alone if they only knew the things that would happen in the minds of two boys when their parents were gone. We had a good idea. We always tried to watch the clock on when they would come back because we would shape up before they came home and whatever we were doing that was so incredibly naughty we would make sure we weren't doing it by the time they, they, they came home. But every once in a while, being the wise parents that they were, they came home when we were unaware. Yes, they did. And Jesus is going to come back at a time when we're unaware. If you believe that Christ could come back at any time, it might affect what we rent at Redbox. Amen? It might affect some choices of Netflix. You're going through Netflix and you're like, 
Now, if Christ came back during this movie, is this where I would want to be when Christ returns? So if this hits us, if it gets to our hearts, and all of a sudden it causes us to obey in a greater way because we want to be found doing his work when Christ returns. Verse 15 and 16, Paul then gets fixed in upon Christ. It seems like once he starts to talk about Jesus and his appearing, he can't help himself but to go into it in more detail which he will be manifest in his own time. So Christ is going to appear in his own time. No one knows the day or the hour. Don't fall for a false teacher that tries to claim the day or the hour. He who is the blessed, speaking of Christ, he is the blessed and the only potentate. Now potentate is sovereign monarch ruler. He is the ruler of all rulers. He's the only potentate, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. What Paul's excited about, what he's worshiping about, is what we worshiped about tonight as well, and it's the authority of Christ, that there's no authority over Jesus Christ. Remember Job. Job suffered, didn't he? And some would say, well, he suffered by the hand of the devil, and that's true only to a point. Satan was the one that did the blows, but who did Satan have to get permission from? If you go back and read the first few chapters of Job, he had to get permission from the Father. The trials came through the hand of the Father. There's nothing that's beyond the authority of God. What are you going through tonight? It's passed through the hand of the Father. He's the only potentate. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he rules and reigns in a sovereign position over our lives. Now that may cause some difficulty tonight to go, well, I don't know why God allowed suffering in Job's life, but it brings great comfort to me because I can trust the hand of my father. Even though I don't always understand it, I'll be honest with you, I don't always get what he's doing or why he's allowing this. And Job didn't understand either. But I'm much more comfortable with a world that's under his control than under the devil's control or some leader's control, be it Putin's control or someone else's control. And we're able to rest and go, it's all in God's control. He's the king of kings. He's the only potentate. Verse 16, who alone has immortality? He alone is not subject to decay or death. He's unchanging, dwelling in unapproachable light. If it wasn't for the sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, we could never approach Jesus Christ, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. The last two commands for Timothy. It's like, okay, Paul's about ready to sign off, but as a good pastor, he's got a couple more points, right? Have you ever been in those messages where like, it was a great message if he would have ended 15 minutes ago, right? Well, Paul's got a couple more points before he's done. The next is a command. This is a command that Timothy is to give to the church of Ephesus. Command those who are rich in this present age to not be haughty. From history, we know the city of Ephesus, even from the ruins, we can tell this, was a very wealthy city. Some believe that it was the wealthiest city of the time in that, in that region. Most likely in the church of Ephesus, there was many rich people. So this warning goes out to the rich and he says, in this present age, don't be haughty. 
Meaning, don't be prideful. Don't think that because you're rich, you're better than someone else. I don't know why this tends to slip into people's minds, but they think that somehow more money, more stuff, more accomplishments, it gives them greater value than someone else, and they kind of go through their life like they're, they're haughty or they're above somebody else. Now, before you check out and say, this next few verses doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich, you know, I'd like to try it, but I'm not rich. May I give you just a little bit bigger perspective? We, in the news, you've seen quite a bit written this last year about the 1% of America. You know, this, this 1% that's the wealthiest in America. And there seems to be more and more discontent towards the 1, 1%. Now, before you tune me out, just consider this. When you take someone who's living at poverty line, the poverty level in the United States, and you compare their wealth to the rest of the world, they're living in the top 1% compared to the rest of the world. All of a sudden, things get flipped on us a little bit, don't they? And we start wrestling, well, how much do I care about all these other people in the world that don't even have anything comparison to what we have? If you're at the lower level of an economics in America, you're still rich compared to the rest of the world. I know this is not a very popular statement. This is my statement. It's something that I perceive to be true. But even being homeless in the United States of America is a lot better than a lot of countries that I've, I've been to. A lot of times, even in a, in a homeless state, you can find food to eat, uh, and there's, it's not fun. I'm not trying to minimize the suffering of that, but I am trying to open up our horizon to say there's a whole nother world out there, and even in our recession and economic difficulties, we're rich. This does apply to us when we compare ourselves to the rest of the world. So, let it sink in. Don't be haughty. Don't be prideful. Do you ever look at another culture that maybe is a third world country and for some reason you look down at them and kind of think things like, why can't they manage their resources or why can't they get their, their act together? This enters into our mindset more than we would want to be willing to admit. And God's word says, don't be haughty, don't be prideful, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives richly all things to enjoy. What's your hope in? What's your trust in tonight? And if it's in a bank account, if it's in some investment, if it's in a business, well, it's uncertain. Proverbs tells us how riches can be like a bird and fly away. And we've seen that in recent years, 2007, 2008, the stock market has its crash. $1.2 trillion were lost in the stock market in one day in September in 2018. That's a lot of stinking money. We can't even comprehend that. In 1987, in the stock market, it dropped 20% in one day. We go back to the Great Depression, and we read of that and what took place there. And we all have personal stories of what seemed to be stable financially, and then all of a sudden, it became unstable. You can be the most responsible person in the world and go through a difficulty time health-wise and all of a sudden see the savings just go out, out the door. It's an understatement to say that riches are uncertain. So why would you trust in riches when you could trust in the certain God? <laughs> a God that's unchanging, a living God who has our hope and our trust. But this is something that we need to be reminded of, that we don't trust in the almighty dollar. We trust in the living God. The end of verse 17 says that he gives us all things to enjoy. So being rich, being wealthy, 
It's nothing wrong in and of itself. If it doesn't become an object of greed, if God has blessed you, enjoy it. Ecclesiastes speaks a lot about that. Enjoy the blessings that that God has given to you. This isn't this heavy trip to have false guilt placed upon people. Enjoy what the Lord has provided. That's what he's given. But as you enjoy it, also consider others. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. So instead of trusting in riches, we should be prepared to do good so that we would be rich in good works. If God had his way, what would he rather us be rich in? Rich in good works. Now, if the Lord's blessed you financially, praise the Lord. There's no being condemned in that, but not to the neglect of good works. Be rich in good works. Be ready to give. And is this the way we live our lives? (laughs) It's mine. It's mine. (laughs) It's mine. Or do we go, it's God's. God's, you've blessed me with this. This is not my piggy bank. It's not my cash cow. It's not my car. It's not my house. I know that you could take it all away in a moment's notice, and I'm ready to share. I'm ready to share. God, if you come knocking at my door, and I know that it's you, and I know it's a need that you want me to meet, this is all your stuff. I'm not living a, it's mine, it's mine life. I'm living a, it's yours, it's yours life. Being ready to share, ready to give. Verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Did you see the connection? You're storing up a foundation. You're not earning your salvation, but you're laying up treasures in heaven. And Jesus taught us to do this by giving, by sharing, by investing in the kingdom. We're placing our treasures in heaven. The treasure principle is this. Heart follows treasure. So as you put treasure in heaven, notice what Paul says to Timothy, you're laying hold of eternal life. The more you invest in God's kingdom, the more you care about it because your treasure is invested there. Heart will follow treasure. If someone puts a lot of money in a particular stock, they're gonna follow that investment. Then they sell it, And they're not going to follow it near as closely. Why? Because heart follows treasure. So God in his love for us so that we'd be more eternally minded says give. Because as you give, you're laying hold of to eternal life. Because it's a miserable existence for us to go through this life with our heart fixed on this world. Amen? Or like, this is all there is. This is all there is. And as we give and we share and we live for God's kingdom, we're laying hold of eternal life. So here's our last point tonight in verse 20. Oh, Timothy. Oh, Timothy. The heart of a father. It gets to the very core of legacy and passing on spiritual heritage to someone else. It's, it's the love. I don't hear frustration here. I hear the warm heart of a father saying, oh, son, oh, my, my boy, oh, oh, Timothy, you're gonna make it. You're gonna do good. God, God's got you in the place that he wants you to be. I believe in you. I'm praying for you. I believe in what God's doing in your life. It says, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babbles and contradictions of which is falsely called knowledge by professing it some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you, amen. Guard what was committed to your trust. O man of God, O woman of God, What was committed to your trust? Guard it. Is there a marriage that's been committed to your trust? Guard it. 
Is there knowledge of God that's been committed to your trust? Guard it. Is there children that have been committed to your trust? Guard it. Single brother, sister in Christ, is there friendships that have been committed to your trust? Guard it. Is there a niece or nephew that's been committed to your trust? Guard it. Is there a ministry that's been committed to your trust? Some second graders, some high school students, ushering in your neighborhood, in your workplace, guard it. Because if we don't guard it, we're going to lose it. There's a temptation for, for Timothy to not guard what God has given to him, to not guard the calling that God has placed upon his life. He says, you guard it, Timothy, because as you guard it, then you'll keep it and you'll be faithful to the things that God has given. As we've seen several times in this letter, Timothy's to be careful to avoid conversations that lead to nowhere. Don't go down that road. It's a waste of time, and some have even strayed from the faith He leaves Timothy in the hands of grace. Grace be with you. We focused on six words tonight. Flee, pursue, fight, keep, command, and guard. As we enter into communion tonight, let's meet with Jesus. I love coming to church. I was excited tonight to come to God's house. I love studying God's word. I love worshiping. But you know what I love even more? is spending time with Jesus. Because the word of God is to take us into deeper relationship with God. It's one thing to come to church, it's another thing to draw near to the Lord. God promises, he says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. And as we come to the communion table tonight, let's not allow this to be a tradition that we just do, but let's make much of Jesus in our hearts. Remember his suffering. We're going to take communion as you are led by the Lord to come to the tables. The, the communion is here for you, and you can come, and there's tables in the back as well. And you're going to have a cracker in your hand and some juice in your hand. And the cracker, the bread, it represents Jesus' broken body. And take some time. Don't just throw down the cracker and be like, I'm done with this. I'm going to head on with my way. But stop and think about Christ being beaten, his beard being ripped out crown of thorns being placed in his head, the nails in his hands, the nails in his feet, that his hands were nailed to the cross to pay the price when our hands have done things that we ought not to do, that his feet were nailed to the cross because our feet have taken us places that we never should have gone before, that blood came from his head with the crown of thorns because we think thoughts that don't honor and glorify the Lord blood coming out of his side after he died, symbolizing the new life that we've received. And just meditate upon him, spend time with him and thank him. Thank him, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for your blood that was shed for me. Then just spend time, Lord, show me my heart. Show me these things in in my life. Am I possessed by you? Am I God's man? Am I God's woman? And as God puts things on our heart, confess them. I love trash day. Do you know why? Because the trash goes out of the house. It's a wonderful thing. I scour the house for all the trash, all the trash cans. Get it out. And we need trash day spiritually. And if there's some trash in our hearts that's begun to pile up, get it all out. Don't, Don't head out into the parking lot without allowing the Lord to cleanse those deep recesses of our hearts. Let's pray together and prepare our hearts for communion. 
Jesus, we thank you for...